Hebrews 12, and I just want to, before we move on, read the final two verses, number 28 and 29. Before that, a, a, a short prayer. Lord, feed your sheep this morning. Let your sheep hear your voice and draw us nearer to you. For Christ's sake, amen. amen. Hebrews 12, 28 and 29. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. Now the first thing I want to show is groundbreaking. Our text begins with the word therefore. That's it. It begins with the word therefore. What's that tell us? What's that say to us? It's that we can't remove verses 28 and 29 from what we talked about last week in verses 25, 26, and, and 27. And my hope is that we are growing in uh, our understanding and our Bible study that as Paul told Timothy that we are growing to be workers of the Scriptures who are approved by God Rightly dividing the word of truth. So if you really want to be approved by God as a worker in the scriptures, rightly dividing the word of truth, you must always take into consideration the therefores. And understand that we can't pull passages out from their context, out from where they live, right? So verses 28 and 29 live in this paragraph that starts in 25, and this paragraph lives within this section that really starts in verse 18, which then is connected to 12 in the whole chapter of Hebrews and in the whole New Testament and to the whole Bible. We have to see it in its place. And so I want to use this time as an introduction just to remind you of the three points from our time together last week as we looked at verses 25, 26, and 27. Three main points. The first was... A somber warning. And the warning was, you better listen to Jesus. Do not neglect his words. Because if you neglect the words of Jesus, we see very clearly in 26 and 27 that you will meet the judgment of Jesus. And you will not escape. Verse or number two. The second point of last week is that this judgment that is to come at the return of Christ will be a severe and violent judgment. Hence the word shaking or shook. The judgment of God through Jesus will be a violent shaking that nothing that is made can withstand. The earth will tremble, the mountains will crumble. And the sky will vanish. But how did the writer of Hebrews begin chapter 1? 
when speaking of this event, what, or I should say who, will remain? But the Son, the Christ. And that was the final point of the sermon last week. The sacred remains. The only thing that remains at this shaking, the only thing worthy to stand, is the Son, the Head. But the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that where the head is, there also is the body. And so that's how we move on into verse 28 to this therefore. And as you're trying to rightly divide the word of truth, when you see the word therefore or wherefore, Always understand that you're going to come up to something next like an instruction or an exhortation or a command that's going to relate back to what you had just been told in the previous verses in the previous context. So that's where we are today. We are going to receive instruction, exhortation, even a command. Now, the three main headings that we're going to understand or see in verse 28 and 29, and I don't have time to exhaust it all, and we will, Lord willing, take up a little bit of it this evening. The three main words I want you to hang on to are this, grace, gratitude, and worship. Grace, gratitude, and worship. Now, here's what I want to do. I want to read this passage one more time with those words in your mind, grace, gratitude, and worship. And then I want to give you a a short uh, summary statement. Look back at verse 28. Grace, gratitude, and worship. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. So here's the thought I want you to come away with this morning. One who experiences the grace of God in Jesus Christ is one who is overcome by gratitude. And that gratitude propels that person to draw near to God in worship. And doing that by offering themselves as living sacrifices for the sake of Jesus Christ, the one whom offered up himself for us. Grace leads to gratitude, leads to worship. So let's begin with grace. Now, if you've got the King James or the New King James, this might feel a little confusing at first because I'm not talking about the word grace that you see in your verse. For your the King James and the New King James mentions that we are to have or show grace, hold on to grace because we've received a kingdom. I'm approaching that word that you see as grace as gratitude or thankfulness. And I'll explain why as we get a little in a little bit further. But when I speak of grace that's in verse 28, 
I'm speaking about the act of grace that is being portrayed by God to sinners. I'm referring to the act of grace of receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. This is an act of God's graciousness towards shakable sinners made of the dust, wicked men and women who come from the dirt and who will go back to the dirt. And if it were not of the grace of God, we would be shaken back into dust. The grace shows that we have, been, we have inherited the kingdom of God through being united to Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So, two things come to us in verse 28, specifically the first half that show us the grace of God. The when and the what. And here's what it is. We've received when we did not deserve. We've also received what we could never build. We've received when we did not deserve, and we've received what we could never build. So number one, we've received when we did not deserve. Now, Hebrews is helpful for us and helpful for the church, church, church folk who it's so easy for us to get into a state of spiritual amnesia and start attributing to ourselves the work of God. And it's a thing that happens and can happen over time to where we begin to boast, not in the Lord, but in who we are. We've come to church our whole lives. We've, we've, we've sang all the hymns. We've read through our Bibles many, many times. We give to the, uh, put in the offering plate over and over again and so on and so forth. And in the back of our minds, we begin to think that the kingdom that we have received is actually owed to us. Perhaps even God should be happy that we are in His kingdom. See, the real danger is subtle here. And what happens when we forget the grace of God in giving us a kingdom that we have never deserved, we forget of His grace and the beauty and the glory of His grace begins to fade in our hearts. Very much like the frog in the pot scenario. The frog jumps in the hot water, the boiling water, and knows it's hot. But over time, if it sits in cold water and the water begins to boil over a long period of time, it stays stays in it and dies. Very much, it is obvious when someone walks away from the faith. When they fall away from grace abruptly. But the gradual fade from the glory of grace is just as dangerous and more deceptive. Continue in your church attendance. Walk in and talk in like a Christian. Fill in the tithe uh, bucket. But slowly, all at the same time, becoming less awestruck with the reality 
that this God would include you in an everlasting kingdom. You become slowly less awestruck by the reality that God would save a sinner such as you. And in the opposite, instead, growing in self-righteousness. And over time, unmoved by grace. Perhaps even subconsciously thinking, you don't need grace anymore. You begin to be an oxymoron. An entitled Christian. Just doesn't work. No such thing as an entitled Christian. But here's the grace. Here's the grace in all of it. This kingdom, it has been given to you. It has been given to you by God when you deserve nothing but to be outside of it. God is not obligated to give us anything, let alone an unshakable kingdom. See, we cannot get into our hearts and minds that we have been a Christian for so long that we begin to think that we have God bound to give us what we deserve. We do not bound God to anything. We do not hold Him to anything. We have not made ourselves worthy of receiving such a kingdom. We have not cleansed ourselves so spotless and pure that we are deserving such a kingdom. And we have never, nor will we ever, do enough good works to be awarded such a kingdom. But it's actually the contrary. And this is grace. We as fallen creatures, sinful in our nature, are worthy of the kingdom of darkness. Before God, we are so filthy and vile that our good deeds are but filthy rags. Our sin and our filth has so corrupted us in every inch of our being, our heart, our mind, our soul, that apart from the grace of God, standing before Him in our flesh, un, uh, unclothed, bare, exposed, Hebrews 10 tells us exactly what we ought to expect Exactly what we are entitled to apart from the grace of God. A fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And of course, as our text says in verse 29, for our God is a consuming Fire. So, friends, we have what we do not deserve. We've received a kingdom that we would never earn. But I want you to hear me, friends. Hear me very closely. Because there are some that need to wake up to this reality. You've been a Christian for a long time. But you've never truly believed that God hates your your sin. So I want you to hear me lovingly this morning. If you are a professing Christian and deep down you are indifferent to your sin and indifferent to any sort of relationship with Jesus, this consuming fire of God that we call hell awaits you. And I want you to know this, friend. If that is true of you, that means that you have not 
put your faith in the cross of Christ. If you are indifferent to your own sin, you have not looked upon the, re- the crucified and resurrected Jesus. You have not seen by faith his nail-pierced hands and his pierced side. You have not trusted in the work of Christ because the work of Christ, as he starts Hebrews 1, was to come for the purification of sin, for the purging of our wickedness and our unrighteousness. He died for sin. And if you are indifferent from, to sin, you are indifferent to his death. You have not turned to God by faith in Jesus Christ. But today you can. Today you can. Today you can be released from the burden that is bearing you down, weighting you all the way to hell. If you drop your burden at the foot of the cross, today you can find forgiveness. Today, by fleeing to Christ, you can be freed from that bondage of sin and be made a slave to Christ, a servant of Yahweh, a true worshiper of God. And as he said already once in chapter 3, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. But believe on the Lord Jesus and be saved today. Christian, true worshiper of God, those who are in Christ, today you stand unshakable upon Mount Zion. And this is the grace of God. Despite your deserving judgment, despite your growing up and learning from the domain of darkness, as it's written in in Colossians, God has qualified you for his kingdom. He has plucked you from the domain of darkness and qualified you for an unshakable kingdom. He has qualified you for an inheritance that is undefiled, unfading, indestructible, and unshakable. An inheritance for the saints in light. For the saints who are united with the head, Christ. He has delivered you from the domain of darkness and transferred you to the kingdom of his beloved son. In whom you have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. By grace, you have received a kingdom when you did not deserve it. But not only that, we have received what we could not build. Mankind, history is filled with men trying to build kingdoms that would last forever. But what do we know about all of these attempts? Vanity. Mankind has worked their fingers to the bones, put their minds in stupors. Mankind has devoted countless hours, sacrificed time and money, attempting to build their own kingdoms. Some of them, literal kingdoms, countries, nations, empires. But then some not so obvious. For some of us, we've built kingdoms On Monday through Friday from 8 to 4. Some of us have built kingdoms on 180 acres with livestock. Some of us do it at home 
trying to build a kingdom for your family that will safeguard them from all the evils of the world. And all of these in different ways face the temptation to build our kingdoms. Kingdoms, the kingdoms we build are made in attempt to manufacture only that which the kingdom of God can provide. Comfort, joy, and satisfaction. And most important, we believe that if we work real hard at building our own kingdoms, our own kingdoms, they will last as long as we will last. What are the purposes of the kingdoms that we build? Well, it's really the same purpose of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is there and the center of it will be God himself. Well, when we build kingdoms, do you know what we place in the center? Our idols, the ones we truly worship. We place at the center of our kingdom that which we truly love and do not want to lose. So for the one who's building a actual kingdom, say Nebuchadnezzar, where did he what did he put in the center? Himself. Which is an idol. Exactly right. And when we build kingdoms at work, the idols that we place in the center are typically wealth and power. Idols that we build in the kingdom on our 180 acres typically are that of self-accomplishment and self-dependency. And for the parent at home building a kingdom at home, the idol is typically control and comfort. In all reality, you could probably shift and move all of those idols to each one of those different kingdoms. For we all deal with our own, have our own idols. For as Calvin once said, our hearts are just idol factories. But all this is true for these little kingdoms we attempt to build in our lives. We build them so they'll last forever. We make ourselves gods over our little kingdoms. We may not want to admit it, but we think because it's my kingdom and I have built it, I'm in control, and therefore it cannot be shaken. But how deceived are we? So I'm going to ask you this question. What do all these kingdoms have in common, the ones we live in and the ones we try to build? Look at verse 27. Just a reminder. What do all those kingdoms outside of the kingdom of God have in common? The phrase yet once more indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is things that have been made. No matter how hard we try, whether it's a city in America or a city within our hearts, no matter the, how many maneuvers we try to build, no matter how many of the smartest people we gather together, you can never build a kingdom that will stand the fiery test of God the consuming fire. And why? Why is that? It's because that which is built by man is tainted by the builder. The kingdoms that we build will fail because we are the ones who are building them. We build kingdoms with walls made of pride, gates made of greed, 
and the building foundations are laid on sands of self-righteousness. And none of those things can or will stand. None of those things can hold fast against the righteous standard of God. For our God is a consuming fire. But Christian, beloved, here is the grace of God. You have been given a kingdom, a holy city, whose designer and builder is God. The kingdom we have received is a heavenly one, an indestructible one. And guess what does not show up at that kingdom? Rust, moths, thieves. The kingdom of God is not a place of words, but as Paul says, a place of power. It is the unshakable kingdom. And this kingdom, the kingdom of Christ, is built not on our pride or greed or self-righteousness, but it is built upon the wisdom and righteousness and holiness of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. The designer God, built by the Son and remains forever, bound together by the Spirit of God. This is the kingdom of the Trinity. The kingdom that you have received, that you did not deserve, nor could you ever design or build. This is the grace of God in receiving such a kingdom. And so, what is the response to such grace? It's gratitude. I like the order that the KJV and the NASB order verse 28 Starting with the grace and then showing the gratitude. The NASB says, Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude. Or let us be grateful. Or let us be thankful. Or let us show thankfulness. Or thanksgiving. Here's the main thought I want you to understand when we see grace and gratitude. The recipient of such grace ought to be an overflowing well of gratitude. Why? Because gratitude is the child of grace. Grace births gratitude. Now, this is a word translation issue, but it's also the glory of God in the way he uses language. Because I said the KJV and the New King James, they use the word grace instead of gratitude. And I have been stumped on that for weeks in preparing to get to this passage. But here's the reality and why these words are interchanged. And if you do a word study throughout the New Testament, you understand that the Greek word that is used here can be translated grace or gratitude. Okay? And so I've been thinking and trying to understand why is this? Why is it in some letters... That same Greek word is translated grace, and in other, in other areas, it's translated gratitude or even thankfulness. The reality is, is that grace and gratitude are so closely connected that the same word is used for both in the Greek. And in Latin, grace and gratitude come from the same word. So here's the reality of grace and gratitude. Now, when we think of grace theologically, we think of unmerited favor, right? 
And we, we, we bound that up and, 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 and see unmerited favor because we see the scriptures that grace is favor that is unmerited. But if you just look at the simplest form of the Greek word that's used for grace, it, in its smallest, simplest definition is just favor. And so favor begets favor. If someone is gracious to you, your response to them is grace. If someone shows you favor, your right response to them is to show them favor. Grace births gratitude. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Verse 14 and 15. So what are we looking for? We're looking for this pattern. Grace, gratitude. Knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. Can you tell me which one that is? Grace. Verse 15. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. Where grace enters, gratitude exits. You understand? That's why these words are so closely tied. The recipient of such grace of receiving an unshakable kingdom, the kingdom of God, ought to be an overflowing well of gratitude, of thanksgiving, because gratitude is the child of grace. Now you can see that example all throughout the scriptures, but we must move on. And... As we consider being good workers of the word, rightfully dividing the word of truth, I want to give you a habit, and that's to ask questions of the text. Ask questions about what you're reading. And as you think through, as I was thinking through this verse 28, I asked myself, why is this a command? Why? Why is the author commanding me to gratitude? Because can you fake gratitude? No. Can you fake thankfulness? No. A a, a sense of false gratitude is just lip service. It is not sincere. So why would God, through the writing of this letter command us to thankfulness and gratitude. I don't think he is. I don't think the emphasis is to command gratitude any more than we are to just create it within our hearts. I think the emphasis... 
that we're being commanded to remember that which we ought to be grateful for. Make sense? This is an attempt to stir up your gratitude by reminding you of how gracious God is. You have received a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Therefore, be grateful. Be grateful. Think about Scripture. Think about God helping His people from the old to the new. What is a word He reminds or He continues to say to His people and we will, we will actually obey today? Remember. Remember my name. Remember my works. Remember my power. Remember this day. Remember this miracle. Remember my commands. Remember my salvation. What is he hoping to do? What is he wanting that wanting to happen when he tells people to, his people to remember him? Remember your past position, your chains, your sin, for such were some of you. Remember my redemption, my love, my mercy. Remember my grace. To stir up within you the affections that come from knowing and remembering the work and the person of God. Do this in remembrance of me is an act of grace in itself. Commanding you to do something in remembrance of him by the power of the spirit and the informing of the word is God graciously stirring up in your hearts thanksgiving. Now, to the ones I was speaking to earlier, um, those who may be indifferent about your sin, and I've warned you, uh, if you are concerned and stirred in your heart regarding your soul and your salvation because you don't feel conviction or you do feel indifferent towards sin, or maybe you uh, you're, are concerned that you are in danger of judgment, here is another test to see whether you are in the faith. And that is simply just to ask yourself, is your heart full of thanksgiving? Are there seasons in your life when you are overcome with the gratefulness of God's grace? For saving and loving and redeeming you. I go back to what I said at the beginning. One who experiences the grace of God in Jesus Christ is one who is to be overcome with gratitude. And if the Lord is revealing to you your indifference to sin, if He's revealing to you that you lack thanksgiving for His grace in Jesus Christ, there's one thing for you today, and that is to repent and confess your sin to Him. Declare your need of the blood of Christ to cleanse you from all unrighteousness and receive the grace of God and be filled with gratitude. Just one more thought on gratitude and then we'll move forward. Our gratitude, our thankfulness should be a light to this world. Your thankfulness, your gratitude should be a light to this world. Why? Because if gratitude is the offspring of grace and we are showing 
gratitude in this world, they got to connect it back to something. Where is their where is their gratitude coming from? What are they so thankful for? Our gratitude, our thankful hearts ought to be pointing the people around us to the glorious grace of our God in the face of Jesus Christ. To unbelievers, to your spouse, to your children, to your neighbors, to strangers. As you live together, husband and wife, be thankful and grateful to remind your spouse of the grace of God. Don't be grumblers and complainers. It's something we try to teach our kids, right? You grumble and complain. What are you telling me? You're not thankful for nothing. That's what God's saying to us. You grumble and complain about everything. Are you thankful for my grace? You think back to Philippians 2. There's always something to complain about. Let me repeat this. There is always something to complain about. Amen? Amen. But in the light of what we have to be thankful for, it's not worth your breath. It's not worth a moment of your time. Be one who is thankful in a generation that is twisted and crooked by grumbling and complaining that never can see hope in anything. But you have the hope of Christ within you. Live your lives among the grumblers and complainers with one who is always thankful for the grace of God in your life, no matter what the situation. For we have received a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And let us show gratitude. Let us be grateful. And if gratitude is the child of grace, worship is the manifestation or expression of that gratitude. Look back at the verse 28. I'm going to read it from the NASB version. Therefore, since we received a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude. Let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. How do people know that you are grateful for the grace of God? They know you as a worshiper of God. It's not just good enough to say, I'm thankful, I'm thankful, I'm thankful for that, I'm thankful for that. But true gratitude for the grace of God is expressed in worshiping the God who is gracious. Now quickly, two things. I'm I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this. We'll come back to, to, to acceptable worship tonight. What is worship? What worship is not? And... Uh, yeah, let's just let's look at that. What worship is not, and this is sort of outside of the text, but it's going to help us to understand our gratitude. Worship is not the portion of the service we started with this morning. Okay, we cannot we cannot equate worship with simply singing. You cannot do that. You can worship while you sing, but worship isn't simply singing. Not only that, but when we leave today, 
you can't say, I'm done worshiping, I'm going to do blank now. Not only is worshiping not just singing, it's not just gathering together with the saints. It is gathering together with the saints, but it's more than that. Now, we could get into a whole historical understanding of the last 150 years of how we've gotten there. And maybe we can touch on that one Sunday evening because it's quite interesting. These things can be a part of worship. But the truest meaning of worship goes much deeper than just what we do here on a Sunday morning. So here's how I want you to think about it. Imagine a sunflower. A young, immature sunflower. Do you know what a young, immature sunflower does? It worships the sun. Do you know how? In the morning, and it faces the east and reaches out towards the sun. And as the day goes by and the sun casts itself to the west, the sunflower turns and follows the sun all the way there. Because... The sunflower knows that its life depends on the sun. The sunflower knows that its maturity, its growth, depends on the sun. And so the young sunflower will point itself into the direction of its life source all the day long. That is worship. But you know what else the sunflower does? When the sun goes down, do you know what it does? turns back to the east during the night because it knows where the sun will be after the darkness. Think about that for a moment. When you are in a dark time, you know where to find life. You know where you ought to go. That is the true Understanding of worship, directing ourself to him who is our life. That's how he started this small section in Hebrews in chapter 10, verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by a new living way that he opened us, opened up for us through the curtain that is through this flesh. Since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. Your worship is drawing near to God. Your worship is acknowledging that he is your life. Acknowledging that he is your Lord, your master, and you are his servant. Worship is our service to God. And we know that that Greek word used here in Hebrews 12 can be translated worship or service. The true worship and here's what true worship or true service to God is. Three things that define it. And I'm not going to go. I got one sentence for each. True worship and service to God is submissive. Sacrificial and sacred. It's submissive as a servant is to his master. Worship is obedience. 
Worship is sacrificial as one sacrifices their life to serve their master. It's not just obedience, but we sacrifice our lives to live and obey our master. And the third, true worship and service is sacred, as in it is holy. All worship and service is to be done to the standard given by the master. Acceptable, as it's said in verse 28. And there you can parse out the understanding of reverence and awe. And we'll talk more about that this evening. Understand this. Worship isn't an hour. Worship isn't a song. Worship is the life of those who have received grace from God and is expressed and gratitude and giving up their lives for the sake of Him who has been gracious. Our lives are to be a never-ending act of worship, of service. It is drawing near to God as we saw but the but we have to understand something the main one of the main themes in hebrews is endurance worship never stops it must not stop you must not you must not get to a point where you say i've i've done enough i've drawn close enough i, I i've worshiped him for a while and that's enough You must not stop. You must not stop. Because look at verse, go back to 10 and we'll, we'll finish here. Look at 10, 37. We've talked a lot the last few weeks about the second coming of Christ, about a judgment that He will return. For yet a little while and the coming one will come. And will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed. How? How would one be destroyed? Our God is a consuming fire. But we are of those who have faith and preserve the souls, as we've spoken about in Sunday school, do not be, do not be caught on his return, unprepared, unready, not working, not worshiping. And that doesn't mean you have to be in church when he comes back. It means you preserve your soul by faith, trusting in the grace of God through Jesus Christ in service to Him, submission, sacrifice, and holiness. And so we come to the table this morning in in remembrance of the grace of God through Jesus Christ, of the body that was given, of the blood that was shed for the sake of this new covenant, this new covenant that brings us to Mount Zion, this new covenant that brings us to a festal gathering of angels, to the assembly of the firstborn, to, that brings us before the judge of all, and he does not stand before us and find us guilty, but he sees us wearing the wedding feast of the sun, the wedding garment of the sun. Clothed in his righteousness, covered with his blood, that he 
shed upon the cross. And as he met with his disciples in that upper room, and he broke bread with them one final time, he told them to remember him. So as we turn to the table, I want you to understand that this table is for those who know the grace of God in Jesus Christ. But I want you to understand as we spoke this morning in Sunday school, you were invited to Christ. And if the king invites you, it's not something to turn away from and say, maybe tomorrow. The hour is now for you to come to Christ. But brothers and sisters, we come to a table without fear. We come to the table in love, in reverence, in honor. So Brother Dan, would you come and lead us to the table? Once again, when we start, we'll start in the back. Just come up through the center.